0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua. This week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy will begin our study of Chapter 3 and look at some of the questions raised by the Jews. Turn with
1: me please to the Book of Romans. Romans Chapter 3 is where we are this morning. I want to read several verses in Romans Chapter 3. For those of you who have been coming to the church for the past several months You would know that we have been Preaching a series of messages in the book of Romans And um, we want to pick up where we left off the last session And that brings us to Romans chapter 3 Follow with me please What advantage then have the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way Chiefly, because that unto them was committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true with every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou our judge. But if our unrighteousness commendeth the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abundant abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Let's pray. Father, you've set our hearts and toned our minds to prepare ourselves for your truth. We've entered this assembly to hear from you. We did not come here to be entertained. We came here to hear what the word of God says. And if our motive be any other than that motive, we've missed the whole purpose of church. We worship you in our giving. We worship you in our singing. We worship you in our fellowship one with another. But supremely, we worship you in the preaching of your word. So I pray that you'll give us the discipline of mind to listen, to be engaged mentally not to put the mind in neutral and just absorb what is said like a sponge but to think critically to try to grasp the truths that are being taught because they're not just for today they're meant to affect our lives and throughout our pilgrimage and to this end therefore We ask for your presence. We pray for the Holy Spirit who has been given to the church, who indwells a believer, who has come into this world to do a convicting work in the hearts of men who believe not. And we pray that we would give him the ammunition he needs. We would give him the weaponry, the armory, the arsenal that he needs. And there's no greater arsenal to give him than the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So as we present the Word this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit might take that Word and give us an understanding into your ways. And especially for those that know not Christ, that their eyes may be opened, the scales may fall off, and they may be brought into that secret knowledge called the mystery of Christ. And that they may believe and put their faith and trust In him. And then, Lord, for those of us who do believe, help us to evaluate what our treasure really is. May we discover this morning from your word that there's no greater treasure that you've given to us as your people than the oracles of God, the very word of God itself. There's nothing to compare, there's nothing that outweighs it in value and there's nothing more supreme nothing more preeminent for us as Christians than having the word of God that's been given to us thank you for who you are thank you for what you're going to do and we ask you to work and do what no other man man can do and that is to bring a measure of faith and conviction in the lives of those that sit here help me to be honest to your word, to be truthful to your word. Give me simplicity of thought and give me the capacity to explain and bring out the truth of your word in a way that people grasp and understand. But add that dimension of power, the Spirit of God, to give efficacy to your word so that it may do its efficient word in our hearts and bring about some measure of transformation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our study of the book of Romans brought us this morning to chapter 3 of this book. And as we're about to deal with chapter 3, I believe it's important for me to remind you of the arguments that Paul has been making up to this point. Romans is a very logical book. It's very sequential. You cannot understand one section of Romans except you understand what has preceded. It's a closely knit argument that you find in the book of Romans. So beginning in verse number 18 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has been arguing. And the point the Apostle Paul has been arguing is this. That the entire human race is guilty before God and under divine wrath. That all men, whether Jew or Gentile, mor- they are morally guilty before God. To use the words of the Apostle Paul, he said this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And the key word there is the word all. All, irrespective. Divine wrath rests upon every human head because man is morally guilty before God. But can you prove that point? And this is where in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul prosecutes his case. And in verses 19 to 32, the Apostle Paul proves conclusively, if not exhaustively, that the entire Gentile world stands morally guilty before God and is therefore under divine wrath. This is what Paul teaches from verse number 19 to verse 32. Of chapter number 1. And by the way. Paul wants that the Gentiles. We Gentiles. Can never say that we are innocent. And we didn't know the truth. Now if you were to study that particular section. You'll find that Paul gives us two reasons. Why the Gentile world is guilty. Number one. Paul tells us that God has given to the Gentile world revelation. Revelation. God has revealed certain things to the Gentile world. And Paul says that God has revealed to the Gentile world in two ways. Number one, God has spoken to the Gentile world through through creation. That man can look at creation and God, man can know two things. Man can know that there's eternal power. And man can know that there's a divine being. Paul says creation tells every man that. And then Paul goes on to argue that God has also revealed... To man right from wrong. Paul says that God has implanted a conscience in man. So that a man can know what is right from wrong. So when it comes to the Gentiles. Paul is saying that every person born in this world has a God consciousness. You are born with a God consciousness in you. The only way you will ever get rid of that God consciousness in you. It has to be purged or you have to be indoctrinated in something else. In other words, God has a microchip in your head. He has pre-programmed you to know that there's a God. And secondly, everyone in here knows right from wrong. Because God has given you a conscience. So all men have revelation. Theologians refer to this as general revelation. God revealing himself through nature and God revealing himself in conscience. So man, the Gentile world is guilty before God because God has revealed truth to him. And man is responsible for that truth and that light. He's to live up to that light. And the more he lives up to that light, the more light God gives him. He's guilty. But then there's something else that Paul points out why the Gentile world is guilty. Paul said the Gentile world is guilty because the Gentile world has rebelled against the light. That God gave to man. And what Paul does in the book of Romans. As the apostle Paul. Meticulously traces. The devolution of man. See, the descent of man. Not the ascent of man. Or the evolution of man. Paul traces the devolution. How man went from knowing God. To become be, becoming pagans. See. Paul traces it. And the way that Paul does it that Paul tells us there were seven steps. Number one, Paul said that when God gave man the revelation in his conscience and God gave the revelation of, in nature, man was not thankful in gratitude. He didn't value what God had given to him. He, he took it for granted. He squandered the truth. And rather than living up to the light of the truth, He rebelled against the truth that his conscience told him, that is wrong, sir, do not do it. He wanted autonomy and independence. And so man chose to go his own way. And he went out into degradation. Secondly, Paul said that this ingratitude in turning away from the truth that God has given to man, Paul said next, it led to speculative thinking. He said it became vain in their imaginations. The Greek word there is that they became empty in their re You call it philosophizing. That's where philosophy came from. See, It is either you live by revelation or you live, live by reason. Speculative reason. And so in getting away from God, man began to use his, his imagination. And that led him down the path of Philosophy. And philosophy never leaves man to God. It always leaves man away from God. Because philosophy is human reasoning. See? So from ingratitude, man went to speculative thinking. And then thirdly, Paul says, the foolish heart were darkened, Having turned away from the truth and turned away from the light, God judicially blinded man and turned man's light into darkness. So the light went out. Paul says, they became, their foolish heart became darkened. And number four, Paul says, when they became darkened, they now look for alternative explanation for reality. See? And you know what happened to man? Because man turned away from the light and turned away from the truth and God darkened his understanding, man now began to look for alternative sources of reality and man came up with idols. That's how your idolatry started. If there's not a God that... It's presented to us. What kind of a God? And man started making a God like himself. But when he saw that the God like himself could never meet his needs, he turned to animals, creeping things. The ox and the ass became his, his object of worship. The donkey, the mule, anything. Then he turned to the stars and the moon. And what happened? He began to drift, drift further away from God in idolatry. People ask the question a lot, a lot of times. What happened to the heathen? The biblical answer is that the heathen had light at one time to turn away from that light, and they're in the darkness now because they turned away from that light. They're guilty before God. The heathen is not going to be damned because he doesn't believe in Jesus. He's going to be damned because the light God gave him he turned away from. See, that's why there are compartments in hell. There are degrees of punishment in hell. But if a man responds to the light that God has given to him, God gives him greater light and greater light and greater light. Read the story of missionaries who went on the mission field. When they came, people said, but we knew you were coming. We had a vision. The Lord showed us you were coming. You know why? Because they responded to the light and there was more light. And God brought the missionary. An act of divine grace. So ingratitude, speculative thinking, moral blindness... Alternative explanation for reality and that led from idolatry into immorality. You see people become like their God. See? You remember the Greek gods, Zeus and all of those other gods. The, the gods would come down and have affairs with women and create demi-gods. See, So if the gods can be immoral... We are like the gods, so we can become immoral. See. And so Paul points out that after idolatry, we have this whole host of immorality. The more a people go away from God, the more immoral a country becomes. Do you notice that what Paul said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All what? On God and what? Notice, notice the order. It's not against all unrighteous and ungodly, but ungodliness is what brings unrighteousness. And the more people go away from godliness, they become more unrighteous. That's why we have the society we have today. I was told that people were immoral because they were poor. The people in Antigua are far more well-off than they were 40 or 50 years ago. Any person will tell you that. If you listen to somebody, people tell you the struggles that they had. But they've got more now. But what has happened? Where has morality gone? It's gone down the incline. You will also point out something. uh, 40 or 50 years ago, people in Antigua were more God conscious. Now they become paganized. It's the era of neo-paganism. And the more people move away from God, you're going to find the more immoral people's lives become. So when you look at a society, you discover that 70% or 80% of the population are born out of wedlock. You know one thing. you got an ungodly country. That refers either to Antigua or to Barbados. It doesn't matter. It's the same. It is proof that we've gone away from God. And that is what Paul is pointing out. And then immorality, Paul points out, leads to the next step. it called perversion. Aberrant sexual behavior. The perversion of the sex drive. And Paul explains how we got homosexuality, how we got lesbianism. As we get more and more into immorality... The thrill we got from normal sex no longer appeals to us, so we want to go into something they call it deeper. I don't know if you call it deeper, more evil, more wicked, more ungodly. They want greater thrills, and Paul explains to you that when a people become immoral, it's not long before they go into moral perversion, and that's what you got in the Book of Rome. It is traced to you systematically. One after the other. Like a competent lawyer, the Apostle Paul brings the indictment against the Gentile world. And he says to you, the Gentile world is guilty before God. And then when he ends up in verse number 28 to 32 of chapter 1, having discussed that, he then lists 21 different type of sins in Gentile said. In other words, Paul is saying now, you've gone from immorality to perversion, and then sin pervades the entire Gentile world. Brethren, that's like a snap picture of today. That's like God reviewing the modern times in which we live. Because exactly what Paul says, we can also trace our own uh, history. And you will find that substantially that is what has happened. Now, having executed his case against the Gentiles... In chapter number 2, the Apostle Paul now says, Okay, I don't want to show that you Gentiles are guilty before God and under wrath of God and under condemnation. But he turns the spotlight on the Jews and he tries to show to the Jews that you Jews are just like the Gentiles. You may be religious, but you are just as morally guilty before God and under the same judgment and wrath of God. And what Paul does is that once again in chapter 2, he brings charge against charge against the, Gent- against the Jews. He charges them first of all with hypocrisy. Saying that we should do certain things and then you turn around and do the very opposite. We, t- we dealt with that. Number two, he-, he charged them with abuse of privileges. You had greater privileges than the Gentile world. You had the law. You had the prophets. You had the oracles of God. You had the temple. You had the rituals. Well, what good did that do you? You turned around and you lived substantially like the Gentiles. And then he talked about the fact that they're depending on their religious rights and assets. So they just thought because they had these special things that God had given, circumcision, the law, the temple, the rituals, they're now dependent on these things to make them right with God. So as long as they were doing these religious things, it didn't matter whether they were related to God or not. They became what they call religious pagans. Okay. Having all the paraphernalia of religious rites. But yet at the same time, there's no connection with reality, the, real, the true living God. So as long as they kept doing the religious things, they felt they were okay. And then fourthly, Paul charged them with slandering God. Being the very vehicle of the means of actually people misrepresenting God and slandering God. Look, I have said this and I will say it again. I don't worry too much about the unsafe person. What I worry about is the person who claims that they're Christian. The church is not slandered because the unsafe man does what he does. The church is slandered because the man in the church who claims to be a Christian lives the way he does. See? That's the problem. And Paul points out to these Jews that they are guilty. What he does is to show beyond any reasonable doubt that both Jew and Gentile are guilty before God and under divine wrath. Now having done that, We now come to chapter 3 and that's what this chapter is going to be all about. Let me tell you what chapter 3 of the book of Romans, what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 3. There are three sections to Romans chapter 3. In verse number 1 to verse number 8, you'll find that the apostle Paul responds to certain objections that are raised by the Jews. Because the Jews are saying, how can you put Gentiles and Jew on the same level? Paul, you must be sadly mistaken. Something wrong with you. Your thinking is warped. We Jews, with all that God has done for us, yet you put us on the same level as the Gentiles, guilty before God, under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God. You're making a mistake, there, Paul. So, Paul, Paul is now going to respond to that. Did you ask what advantage did we have? So in verses number 1 to 8, Paul is going to deal with the objections that are raised to his arguments in chapter 1 and 2. And then in verses 9 to 20, what Paul does, the Apostle Paul, in order to convince the Jews, he marshals a whole long list of verses from the Old Testament, from the book of the law, from the Psalms, from the prophets. And he brings all of these verses and he throws them one at the other and says, "Listen, here's the evidence, here's the evidence. What I'm saying to you is proof, because even your writings... Said this about you. So he brings all these passages of scripture that you'll find from verses 19 to 20, verse 9 to 20. He quotes one verse after another to show to the Jews that his, his case is completely closed and foolproof. He brings the word of God to bear evidence against them that what he said is exactly right. And then in verses 21 to verse 32, 31, the apostle Paul. Having dealt with that, now he comes back to his theme in verse 18 of chapter 1. Which has to do with the righteousness of God. And Paul will explain to you why the Jews need righteousness. And then how you can appropriate the righteousness God has provided for us. It's one of the great chapters in the Bible. Dealing with the atonement or justification by faith. So I I want us to look in this chapter. And uh, I want us to uh, follow Paul's arguments. And I want you to to see exactly what Paul is saying in, in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 3. Go back there again and let's read those two verses again. That's the two verses we'll concentrate on this morning. The question is asked, what advantage then have the Jews? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Much in everywhere, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, one of the things about the Apostle Paul is that he's writing an epistle. He's anticipating that not everybody going to agree with him. So what the Apostle Paul does, he imagines the hypothetical questions that will be raised in objection to what he's teaching. So having just completely castigated the Jews and put them on the same level as the Gentiles. Said that they were guilty before God, they were under divine wrath. He, he knows that when, he, when the Jews reading that in the church, they say, well, wait a minute. That's not true. That's not true. We are not like the Gentiles. We had certain privileges the Gentiles didn't have. We are superior to the Gentiles. How dare you bring us down to the level of the Gentiles? This is what Paul is anticipating in this chapter. So as, as, as Paul writes, he imagines that someone says to him, Now Paul, just wait a minute. Haven't you gone too far in saying there's no difference between us and them? Haven't you become so in love with your eloquence that you've lost your reason and your argument? The Apostle Paul, don't are you saying literally uh, that the Jew had no advantage and there was no point in circumcision? Paul, are you saying that when God called Abraham out of the herb the Chaldees, and God made a promise to Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham and he gave circumcision as a sign of that covenant are you saying that didn't matter we don't have any advantage and then Paul when Moses was at Mount Sinai and God gave the ten commandments we were there we saw God we heard the voice of God We got, are you saying that the ten commandments made no difference Paul, your logic is flawed. You can't put us on the same level as the Gentiles. By the way, there's nothing like pride. The people who get stuck up and feel they're better than anybody else. And there's no nation on the heaven that have acted in that way more than the Jew. Because he felt he was God's special people. And he is. That made him feel so superior to everybody else. And he felt that the Gentiles were in darkness. He was in light. And that he was somehow superior to the Gentiles. So the Apostle Paul is anticipating this question that is being asked. And the Apostle Paul wants them to know that they have completely misunderstood his reasoning. Paul says to them in effect, listen, I didn't say the Jew didn't have any advantage. That's not, you missed the whole point. What I said to you is this. When it comes to moral guilt, when it comes to the whole matter of condemnation and wrath, I said to you, we're all morally guilty before God. We're all under the divine. That's what I said. But you know, people like to hear what they want to hear. Paul in no way ever suggested... That the Jews didn't have some advantage. But they assumed that because Paul put all in the same equal guilty level. That Paul was saying there's no difference. But Paul is saying there is no difference in respect to sin, guilt and wrath. But that does not mean that the Jews did not have certain advantages. You see what has happened, the Jew has raised a straw man. And when an argument is being proposed that you don't like, people always wear some kind of a strong man. They don't deal with the issue that you're dealing with. They try to make your, what you're talking about something else different. And that's what is happening here with these Jews as they read Paul's epistles. They're saying, "No, oh, wait a minute, Paul. You've given us a false argument when you say that there's no difference between the Jew." And Paul has to explain what he means in this passage. So all he has been demonstrating them is that being circumcised and having the law doesn't mean that you are saved automatically See? And by the way there's a parallel being baptized, being in the church doesn't mean that you are saved automatically. See? There's a parallel there. the same error of the Jews it's the same error of the modern church. If you were to ask some people, why are you going to heaven? Why are you saved? Well, I got baptized. Some people depending completely on the mass. They go to mass and they pay for mass. And they believe as long as they pay for the mass and they have the mass set for them, they're okay. And by the way, you can't argue them out of that false security. The apostle Paul is, is emphasizing the point. You've got the advantage of the law. You had the advantage of circumcision. But having those things doesn't mean that you automatically are in the kingdom of God. See? Because those are outward signs of an inward reality. And if you have the outward sign but you don't have the inward reality, you don't have the real thing. A man became a Jew and he was born into the Jewish family. But at the point of circumcision, he, was a, he came into the family. But if that man did not bow to Jehovah... All this circumcision in the world that he had, he could have had it circumcised a thousand times. He's still outside the kingdom. But he had this outward sign. And because he was born into a certain race, called the Jew. And he was depending upon that. And Paul says, that's not the case, it's not going to work. As a matter of fact, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 25... The Apostle Paul could have said to them... Look, I agree with you that the Jews had certain benefits and certain advantages. Look at what he said in verse number 25 of chapter 2. He said, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou bear break of the law, the circumcision is made of uncircumcision. So Paul's arguing, yeah, it, it, there was value in you being circumcised. But if you were obedient to the covenant, then there's value to you. But if you get circumcised and you're not obedient to the covenant... It's a waste of time. Let me put it this way for those of you who are Christians, see? Or who make a profession. It's no use you professing to be a believer and don't obey God. Did you hear what I said? It's no use you professing to be a Christian and don't live in obedience to scripture. All your profession in the world means nothing unless it is followed by obedience to him. I know that bothers some of you. But you read the Bible very clearly, it's called the obedience of faith. When you put your faith and trust in God, God creates in you a desire to obey Him. See? It's a new nature that's implanted in you. If you find that after you made a professional faith, there's no desire to obey God. I want to tell you, you got something, We don't have the real thing. You just don't have the real thing. And that brings me to, to what Paul uh, begins to talk about. The explanation uh, Paul gives in response to this matter. Uh, notice what Paul says. He said, what advantage then have the Jew? What prophet is there in circumcision? He's now responding much in every way. They had a great deal of advantages. Chiefly because they were committed. To them were committed the oracles of God. Now, It's a fascinating verse by the way. The, 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 the Jews asked us, well, what, was our, what was our advantage then? Did we now have an advantage? And Paul said, I'm going to tell you what your greatest advantage was. And then Paul gives a, uh, makes a fascinating statement that it, 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 it is, I wouldn't say it, it's surprising, but let me ask you a question. If the Jew would have asked you what advantage did he have over the Gentile, well, how would you respond to that? I'm not too sure that you would have responded the way that Paul did. I wonder if you would have said, Well, you know, the great advantage of the Jews that had that they had Abraham as the progenitor, the man that started the Jewish race. Or I wonder if you said, you know, the greatest uh, the greatest thing the Jew had was Joseph, the great prime minister of Egypt. Or somebody would say, You know, the great advantage was Moses. Was there ever an administrator, a military man like Moses? The great lawgiver, or maybe somebody, the greatest they had was Joshua, the man that led them into the promised land. Or somebody, the greatest they had was Isaiah the prophet, Ezekiel the prophet. Would would we not be thought to say those kind of thoughts? But the important thing is this. When Paul is pointing out what advantage the Jew had over the Gentiles, he says to them, you had one supreme advantage over the Gentile world. And Paul is saying, the thing that you had, was the oracles of God. I want to deal with that. for just a moment. Now what advantage did the Jew have? You expect a list don't you? you Paul would well, blah Here's the advantage. But Paul said no. You want to know what advantage you really had? Here it is. You had the oracles of God. That is the supreme thing. Not how we would respond it. Not how we would have acted. But it gives you an idea of the elevated view that Paul had of God's revelation, the word of God. In Paul's mind, there is no greater gift than the word of God given to the Jews. Nothing compares with it. Everything pales in comparison. Now, there's some words that uh, Paul uses here that raises some interesting points. And let me just draw them to you. First of all, the word chiefly. The word translated chiefly, in literally, it should be first of all. But you know what? When Paul says first of all, you expect what? Second of all, third of all, fourth of all. But there is no sequential after. There's no sequence after. He doesn't say first of all, second of all, third of all. Paul said first of all. By the way, in, in chapter 1 and verse 18, when he's writing to the believers, he said, First of all, I want to thank God for your faith that is, is broadcast throughout the whole world. But you never find, again, secondly, I want to thank God that you did this. No, first of all. Now, what, what Paul is saying here is that first in importance. See, the supreme thing that you have that distinguish you from the Gentiles. The preeminent thing. The preeminent advantage that you have is that you have what is called the oracles of God. It's your greatest advantage. So that's the first word that Paul used chiefly. He's saying here the preeminent thing, the most important thing that you have is the word. And then the next word that is used in the King James is to you were committed. Again, in the Greek language, it is far more stronger than that. What it says in the the Greek language, to you were entrusted. God has given to you a stewardship. Something that belongs to God has been entrusted to you as a steward. And you're responsible as a faithful steward to guard that. So he's saying to the Jews, the great advantage you have was that God gave you a preeminent responsibility. Responsibility. And that preeminent responsibility is that God entrusted you with the oracles. I wonder how we see the Word of God. Do we ever see it that way that the preeminent thing that the church has is not the pews and not the building and not the microphone and not the singers. See? That the preeminent thing that God entrusted to the church is the Word. That the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And that's our supreme gift that God has endowed the church with. Committed. So there's are to look after, they are to keep it, they are to guard it, they are to protect it. There are the guardians of truth. And then the other word that is used here is the word oracles of God. Now, if you go through the Bible, you'll find that, that expression is only used four times in the Bible. Uh, in Acts chapter seven and verse thirty eight. You remember when Stephen is given his defense before the the council? And what Stephen does is to show in the history of Israel a consistent process of rebellion. And what Stephen in his defense, they're charging Stephen is going to be stoned. And what Stephen does, he reaches into the files of Israel's history. And he shows them at every stage... In your in your journey, every stage, when God raised up a man, you rebelled against and whether it be Moses or Joshua, every time in your history, there's a there's a mark, every time, rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. And then he said to them, And even now you're resisting the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting in, in, in Acts chapter 8, when he's talking about Moses, and he's talking about how they rejected Moses and rebelled again, even though Moses God had raised up Moses to be a servant. He said, this Moses is one to whom had God had given the living oracles of God. See? The man that was given the living oracles of God, you rejected. Jesse rejected Joshua. He rejected the Christ and now you're rejecting me too. And then he said, ye stiff neck and uncircumcised and hard and ears. You always do resist the Holy Spirit. But the point I'm making here is, Paul, uh, Stephen is saying... That God gave to Moses the oracles of God. The word in the Ten Commandments, the oracles of God. See? And then the next time you find that word is in Hebrews chapter five and verse twelve. The Apostle Paul, in that particular passage, Hebrews chapter five and verse twelve, he's remonstrating and complaining about the dullness of the believers. Paul has got some profound truth to teach to them. You know what Paul wants to teach to them in Hebrews chapter 5? Paul wants to teach them about the order of Melchizedek. That Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. And he wants to open up that truth to them. But Paul says, now I want to teach you this profound truth. I find that you're dull of hearing. And I need to go back to the elementary things of the oracles of God. I want to teach you something more profound, but you're not able to handle it. And I must go back to the basics. But notice again, Paul is referring to the oracles of God. The simple things of the word. And then the third time that this word is used is found in First Peter chapter 4. Where Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak of the oracles of God. And the fourth time is when we have it in this text. So what we mean by the oracles of God is divine utterance, divine revelation. Uh, and when it talks about the divine oracles, the divine revelation, it's talking about the actual words. Not the just ideas, not the just the thoughts of God, but the very words of God. See? Not the mere sentiments of scripture, but the very words of God. And Paul is saying that you Jews had this advantage that God had given to you. His word. So in Acts chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 5, and 1 Peter chapter 4, it's all referring to the, the words of God. The very words that God, when God gave the Ten Commandments, He didn't give thoughts, He didn't give ideas, He gave words. It is called propositional truth. Now the reason why I'm emphasizing that, by the way, is because those of you who are aware of what is happening, Increasingly again and again in modern translations. Is that they're saying we, we, you know, what we need is to just express the thought of the scriptures. The idea of the scripture, not the words of the scriptures. A very dangerous thing. Very, very dangerous. Because God doesn't give us thoughts and ideas, God gave us words. All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. And it's God breathe. Oracles came out. God breathed. This is what God wants. Peter said, holy men of God spake as they move, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just ideas or thoughts. It's words. Jesus made a big argument on one single plural, singular. And by the way, he also made an argument on a verb. He said to the people... God did not say I was the God of Abraham and Isaac But he said God is A lot of difference You see Abraham and Isaac didn't perish He's still their God That's the whole point of the argument But his whole argument was about Whether it should be was or is He said He didn't say he was He said he is see? So if, it thought, if words doesn't matter Believe you me We never know what God is saying see? That's why we believe in the verbal Plenary inspiration of scripture not thought, inspiration. That the words itself are inspired. And that's why the church of Christ has always fought over words in the Bible. Because words express thoughts. And that's why you need to know exactly what the word is. The point that Paul is making here is that the Jews were given the word of God. That is what Paul is saying in this chapter.
0: Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us why the Word of God is the greatest supreme gift ever given to the Jews. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.